You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Amen. Well, good morning. If you are a kindergartner or first grader, you are welcome to go with Miss Becky and Miss Miriam over there to Bible study. And so feel free to head on that direction by the door. And excited as you guys spend some time in God's Word together. And for the rest of us who remain, let me invite you to turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 3. So if this is your first time with us or your first time back in a while, we have kind of just started this expositional series through the book of Acts. We're going verse by verse through this book in the New Testament, and we find ourselves in chapter 3 this morning. So let me invite you to turn there, Acts chapter 3, and let me begin reading for us in verse 1. I'll pray for us, and then we'll dive in and see what God's Word has to teach us this morning. So Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 26. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. 
but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all thing, all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that as your word is preached, Lord, that your spirit would come and give us understanding of this passage. Father, we pray, Lord, that we would see the, the wondrous works of Jesus Christ, the wonderful promises of his coming, of his death, and of his resurrection. And Father, I pray, Lord, that above all, Christ would be held up and that he would be offered to all who are here. Because Father, we know that we have no gold, no silver to give this world. But all we have to give is Jesus. And Lord, we know that he is more than enough. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So what does the church have to offer the world? I mean, if you just watch the news, if you keep up with what's going on, if you just look around our community, there are numerous needs that this world has. I mean, insurmountable needs. I mean, many people face just an incredible sense of poverty. And though our modern economies in many ways has continued to, to elevate the standard of living, at least in the Western world, there are, are many among us, even right here in our community, that, that are stricken by poverty. Others face maybe not poverty needs, but maybe health needs, right? Worldwide, there are, are countless people inflicted by, by disease and, and, and starvation and, and complications that all come from these sort of health concerns, from cancer to the flu, from diabetes to heart problems, there are just so many people sick, so many people in need of healing. You know, and we could go on and on, listing all the sorts of needs that people have in this world. And in the face of such vast needs that this world is inflicted with, and this, world, this broken world is suffering by, I ask again that question, what does the church have to offer the world? Because the sufferings of the peoples of the earth cry out to us. And we hear them and our hearts break for them. And, and we want to do everything we can to, to try to meet those needs as best we can. But yet it never seems to be enough. Because one thing that the church has to offer the world isn't health. 
It's not wealth. It's not meeting education needs or, or hunger needs. I want to suggest that, that all we have as a church to give to this world is Jesus. Is Jesus. Sure, we want to aim to feed the hungry. We want to minister to those who are in suffering. This is what we should do as a church. But I want you to, to understand that ultimately, at the end of the day, the only thing we have to offer the world isn't a thing at all, but rather it's a person. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who has risen from the dead. So as we look to Acts chapter 3, as we look at this whole chapter, we want to see Peter and John, these two apostles, head to the, the temple for prayer. And as they do, they're going to encounter this beggar. And the apostles will heal this crippled man. And this, this healing leads to kind of this public commotion taking place at the temple courts. And so the people begin to gather. They huddle around Solomon's portico in the temple courts. And Peter addresses the crowd. And he explains what happened, how this man was healed. But then he also takes this opportunity, of course, to share the gospel and urge them to repent of their sins and to trust in Christ. So like Peter and John, I think we also need to have compassion for suffering individuals among us. That we need to seek to meet their needs as best as we can, even though our resources will always be limited. But ultimately, we have to remind ourselves that what we have to offer the world is Jesus, and he is more than enough. Because as Peter will help us see, as he begins to preach to the crowd, that Christ alone is the one who provides the healing and the full restoration that this broken world longs for. And perhaps you long for this morning. So here's the sermon summary. It's really simple. If you want to jot it down, all we have to offer the world is Jesus. All we have to offer the world is Jesus. So as we kind of work our way through this, text this morning as we study God's word, I want to highlight for us uh, in three different parts. So I want to look at the wonder of healing from Jesus, the power of faith through Jesus, and the call for salvation in Jesus. So we're going to go through those one at a time. Let's talk about the first one of those, the wonder of healing from Jesus. So at the end of Acts chapter 2, if you were here last week, we kind of closed out this wonderful chapter of we saw the Spirit come in Pentecost and Pentecost and empower Peter to preach this powerful sermon. 3,000 souls came to know the Lord that day. And then we get this beautiful description, as we talked about last week, of the communal life of the early church. And we see what this Spirit-filled, Word-centered community looks like in action. And as Luke gives us this beautiful description, he, he talks about the public witness of the church. Remember this. He talks about how all came upon every soul as the apostles enacted signs and wonders. And so in Acts chapter 3, Luke gives us an example of such signs and wonders. The occurrence of one enacted by the apostles. And so though this is what we have to remember, though the communal life of the early church was incredibly intimate and sacrificial and, and healthy, we also see that this early church is a church that engaged their community. They are in public. They go to the temple. They attend prayers at the temple, all in hopes of testifying to others about the Lord Jesus Christ. So 
you could enter through. So, so we, we see that first and foremost, Peter and John, they, they go to the, the temple for this hour of prayer. Now, typically there were two different times every day in which the public gathered for prayer at the temple mount. There was the morning prayer and the afternoon prayer. So this was a time in which the public was to gather in these big temple courts on the temple mount, and they were to make their way into the temple for communal prayer as a, as a city. So, so Peter and John went up, we're told, at the ninth hour, which would have been 3 p.m. in modern times, right? So this is the afternoon prayer. And you could enter the temple through a few different entrances. The text tells us that they entered through the beautiful gate. And we're not entirely sure which gate this was. If you ask two different archaeologists, you'll probably get five different opinions, right? In terms of which gate it was. But but most likely it was uh, on the the southern entrance to the temple, or perhaps the east entrance to the temple. We're not not entirely sure what this beautiful gate was, but this is where they, they entered into for this afternoon time of prayer. But either way, no matter where this gate was located, this was the time of day in which everyone was making their way into the temple. So all the gates would have been crowded regardless, flooded with people. And so the time of prayer was a strategic time if you were a beggar, right? Because this was the moment in which everybody was entering through these gates. Loads of people would begin to, to make their way through those gates for prayer and worship, and those gates could be a little narrow. Right? So if you strategically placed yourself outside of one of those gates, you are guaranteed to have loads of people, hundreds of people pass by you within just an hour or so span. Lots of people that you might hope would be generous and give you a little bit of money. And so the beggar, we see he's, he's carried out there by, by some people, his friends perhaps, and he's plopped down there right by the beautiful gate, and he begins to, to beg. And so this man, who's born lame, he's, he's unable to walk, he's carried to the beautiful gate, and we see that he does this every day. This was a daily thing for this man, to sit by this beautiful gate at three o'clock in the afternoon and plead and beg that those who would be coming in to pray, pray would, would have compassion on him, would give him a little money, a little gold, a little silver. So a crippled man like this, we have to remind ourselves, was not only physically helpless, not just physically handicapped, but he was also financially destitute. He depended, depended upon the generosity of others for his survival. There was no disability provided by the Roman government, right? There's no social security, no food stamps, no other Roman-sponsored safety net for, for the poor. There's none of that. So this poor man because he was unable to work, literally had to beg just to have food to eat, just to survive. He was helpless. He was hopeless. He was dependent upon crying out to strangers for his survival. Now, if you've ever encountered a beggar on the street, you know that beggars can can make things feel a little bit awkward. At least we can feel a little bit awkward around them, perhaps. Because in their poverty, they just kind of stand out. Right? They're, they're not clean, they're not shaven, they, they look dishuffled perhaps. And beggars often have to learn to be quite aggressive in order to entice you to give them money, almost pestering you perhaps. So typically when most people see a beggar on the street, even today, right, we just tend to pretend they don't exist. 
We don't make eye contact. We don't look at them. We, we know they're there, but we just kind of keep going. And we know that if we make eye contact, they're going to suck us in and then, you know, kind of pounce on us demanding generosity. And so, so a lot of times people just pretend they don't exist. And so as the beggar sat at the gate, he sees Peter and John, these two apostles approaching the gate. And he, of course, perked up thinking that, wow, these two guys, they seem like right prospects, great prospects. So he, he starts his normal begging routine, pleading and, and begging, imploring them for a gift. And as the, the beggar began to enact his howling stint, begging and pleading for money, as he's done multiple times every day of his life, we see that Peter doesn't ignore him, but Peter looks him straight in the eye. He saw this individual. He saw this, this weak and desperate man. You see, the kingdom of God, as we've seen begin here in the book of Acts, it, it's focused in a lot of ways on kind of the rapid growth of the church, right? At Pentecost, we saw 3,000 people all come to repent of their sins and, and to be a part of, of this kingdom that Christ is building through the Holy Spirit and through the church. And so the Church's ministry, as we've seen in Acts, is kind of this big, large-scale thing. It's hard for us to even fathom 3,000 people, let alone have a personal relationship with all those 3,000, right? This is a, a lot of people. But yet, as we see here, Acts chapter 3, the church's ministry doesn't just focus on large-scale gatherings. But there is ministry to be done on the individual level with people. There's ministry to be done in looking a broken sinner in the eye and having compassion upon them, meeting their needs as best as we can and preaching to them the life-changing power of Jesus. Yes, we should do that in auditoriums and, and on large-scale gatherings. Yes, we should preach the gospel in that way. But here we see even the Apostle Peter wasn't so caught up with preaching sermons that he couldn't minister to this broken man by the beautiful gate into the temple. And he sees him. Because not only did Peter look at this man in the eye, but Peter demands the beggar to look at him. All right, so Peter looks at him, demands the beggar to look at him. And so this man, so used to being ignored, rebuked, told to be quiet and to keep his mouth shut, I'm sure this man rarely made eye contact with anyone. People tended to look away. But yet Peter directs his gaze upon the man. And he directs this man, typically of such low esteem, to lift his head and to look him in the eye as well. He wants this man, Peter does, he wants this man to understand what's about to happen and from where his healing will come from. This healing that this man is not even asking for, nor does he expect. So this man stands there looking Peter in the eyes. He's kind of sitting down, crippled, right? He's looking Peter in the eye. He's gotten his attention. He's expecting Peter, well, okay, this guy's going to give me something, right? I might actually get a loaf of bread tonight. So he's looking me in the eye, but, but Peter would give this man a gift that he didn't know was possible to give. Peter said to him, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter had no silver, <laughs> had no money to give. He had no gold, right? I'm sure Judas took it all anyway, right? So there's, there's nothing left, <laughs> right? All he had to give the man was, was Jesus. And by the power of Jesus, Peter healed this crippled man. 
So the man, I'm sure, was a bit stunned. This is not something he was expecting. Right? A lot of times when we read about when Jesus healed people, people kind of knew Jesus was a, a miracle worker in a sense. So you would have to have the, the sick coming to Jesus, asking, begging for him to heal them. But, but this man wasn't expecting healing. He was just hoping for a couple, couple bucks, right, to, to buy, buy something to eat. So the man is kind of stunned. He sat there for a moment. This random guy that he just met coming to the gate just announced healing over him. Clearly, he didn't know what has taken place. And so as you read it, you begin to, to get this sense that he had never used his legs before, never stood upon them, and he didn't realize that they had been made whole, right? Peter just made him whole, and yet he's sitting there. And so Peter, we see Luke describe, almost takes his right hand and he pulls the guy up pulls the guy up to his feet, and, and Luke, who is, of course, a physician, gives a, a rather detailed medical description of this miracle. So when you look at the original language that, that Luke uses here, these are medical terminology in the Greco-Roman world, accurately describing this man's uh, anatomy as his feet and as his ankles were made strong. And Luke says that this miracle happened immediately, immediately. You know, I think we often, we, we read about the miracles in the Bible sometimes so, so frequently that we often kind of fail to imagine what it must have been like to actually witness one of these miracles, to see this sort of immediate physical transformation that takes place, right? When Jesus heals a leper, immediately the skin was restored and, and the oozing sores upon the face and the lips were immediately renewed. Imagine what it must have been like to watch that. In a similar way, the, the immediate healing of this crippled man literally reshaped his legs. Muscles that he had never used swole and became filled with strength. The years of, of, of muscular deterioration from never having to use his legs, I'm sure so thin and so frail, all of that in an instant reversed. You see, this crippled man had no need for physical therapy. He had no need to kind of figure out his balance or to learn to take a step. Peter literally pulls this man off off the ground and his legs were strong, strong. And there that crippled man stood for the first time and he didn't just stand there, but he started leaping. And as the man discovered his newfound ability to walk, we, we see this sort of aerial gymnastics that he starts to do as he's going into the, the temple in this crowded court of the temple for the hour of prayer. This man leaped, he stood, he walked, he danced, he praised the Lord God publicly as he entered the temple. Now, I'm sure any sort of dancing would, would draw attention, right, when everybody's there for, for prayer. But this dancing beggar drew attention from those who were watching. And during that busy hour of prayer, they, they saw this guy, hundreds of people around, just jumping and shouting out and leaping, praising God. And as people watched this man, they recognized him. And this is the guy that sits by the beautiful gate every day at 3 o'clock, begging us for money. What is he doing standing? And what is he doing leaping? And what is he doing praising God? What happened to him? And Luke tells us that they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. As Peter heals this man, I think there's a, a few quick lessons here I want to share with you but just about what do we learn about ministries of mercy? You know, what are ministries of mercy? If you haven't heard that term before, these are, these are ministries that the church 
does, or perhaps you do, to try to minister to the practical needs of people, feeding the hungry, helping the sick, educating the illiterate, right? All these sorts of things that, that just mercy ministers, trying to do good for the world, this broken, fallen world. I think just real quickly, there are just three things we learn here from Peter's example. First, our heart should have compassion upon those in need. We should have compassion upon those who have need. Look at how Peter identifies with this man. He looks in his eyes. He doesn't ignore him, but he sees him and he shows them love. So, so again, I think our heart should have compassion upon those in need. Second, we must make Jesus central in how we minister and, of course, give Christ all the glory. We'll talk more about that in just a second. But, but notice that Peter's pretty clear that it's in, in the name of Jesus Christ that he heals this man. And then third, as we will also soon discover, mercy ministry can draw a crowd. And when a crowd is drawn, it gives us an opportunity to preach Christ, which is exactly what Peter will end up doing. As this crowd begins to gather, wondering what in the world is going on with this guy, Peter takes the opportunity to explain and to preach the gospel. So first, our heart should have compassion for those in need. Second, we want to make Jesus central in how we minister to people. And then third, that ministry, that mercy ministry can often draw a crowd. And when it does, we should be sure that we're preaching Christ as we do. So in this miraculous healing of this crippled man, the people kind of wondered at what occurred. This miracle that Jesus performed through Peter led to the crowd demanding an explanation. What had happened? And of course, Peter takes that opportunity to insist that the people understand that it is through faith in Jesus that this powerful healing of this crippled man has occurred. And that leads, secondly, to the power of faith through Jesus. The power of faith through Jesus. So as they made their way to the temple courts, this healed man, now jumping and leaping, kind of hovered around Peter and John. The text says he clung closely to them. And so the people realize, see this jumping man, and they see that he's hanging around these two guys, Peter and John. And so they kind of corner them at the, uh, at the Solomon's portico on the eastern wall of the temple. And there Peter, this huge crowd that had been gathering, takes the opportunity to open his mouth and address the people about what had happened. And notice what Peter first does as he begins his speech, his message, his sermon here in verse, uh, verse 12. He first deflects all glory from this miracle away from himself, and he gives the glory to Christ. See, as the people gathered, we get a little bit of insight of what the people might have been thinking, what they were saying. Because the people gathered, they wondered, is this Peter and John guy, are they, are they sorcerers? Are they magicians? I mean, who are these two guys who are able to perform this, uh, this sort of miracle? miracle? They must be something special. Must be something powerful about them. And so Peter starts off right out at the start of the message. He says, no, 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 no. There's nothing extraordinary about me. It's not by my, my piety or power that this man is healed. We are just normal dudes, right? We're, we're fishermen, right? This is, we're, we're, there's nothing special about us. And so Peter quickly deflects all the people's praise away from himself, and he redirects it towards Jesus. There's another lesson there, isn't there? In a day and age where I think so much of Christian ministry can ascribe 
celebrity status to, to pastors and ministry leaders. And many Christians can, can begin to, to elevate other Christian leaders to this place of, of prominence and celebrity. And I think Peter's example of humility needs to be replicated in the church today. You know, any power in any man or woman's ministry comes not through that individual, but it comes through Jesus. And we can't forget that. That any vanity, any pride, any self-exalting tendencies, that should be anathema to Christian ministry. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about the the popular preacher on TV or the, the massive book following that the individual has or the social media following, right? It's not about any of those people. It's, it's about Jesus. And so the narcissism of self-promotion in our media age that has sadly infected much of the church, that should be rejected because true men and women of God humbly deflect praise away from themselves to God who rightly deserves it. So Peter deflects all glory to Christ, and then Peter launches into his message, and he wants his people, this crowd to know the uniqueness of Christ. Who is this, this Jesus? He's kind of teeing it up because in just a moment, he's going to explain to them that it's through faith, through Jesus, that this man was healed. But first, he wants them to understand who this Jesus is a little bit. So Peter begins to deflect glory away from himself, and he helps them understand the uniqueness of Christ. And notice what Peter does here, right? He's, he's standing in the temple courts. Right? This is the place where Yahweh is worshipped, right? Herod's temple is right there, right? The Holy of Holies is just a, a wall away, right? And so it's all right there. This is where Yahweh had been worshipped by the people of Israel. And as he stands in the temple courts, he declares that this God that you have all gathered to pray to today, this afternoon, this God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, he has glorified his son, Jesus. He's glorified his servant, Jesus. And the Jewish crowd gathered upon the temple mount. They assembled to pray to their fathers. And, and Peter informs them that this God that they've gathered to pray to, he's glorified his servant, Jesus. Not only that, but they had rejected the servant of God. They delivered over God's chosen one to Pontius Pilate's. And then when Pontius Pilate had decided to release him, the crowd demanded the freedom of the murderous Barabbas instead. So they denied, Peter said, the chosen one of God, the servant of God. They denied the holy and righteous one. Look at what Peter says. They killed the author of life, this one whom God had raised from the dead. Peter says, if you're paying attention, Peter says some astonishing things about Jesus here that would have been astonishing to the Jews listening to this message of Peter preaching from Solomon's portico. Because the language he's using here, he's not talking about Jesus as some sort of rabbi or prophet. Rather, he said, you killed the, the holy one. You killed the righteous one. You killed the author of life. Peter's language is not obscure in the slightest. Peter is saying, you killed God in the flesh. You killed God. You see, the the early church believed wholeheartedly in the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ. Christ is God. Jesus was no ordinary man. You see, this was not something as some people try to do that, say that, you know, the church didn't initially believe in the deity of Jesus, and that was something that was kind of fabricated a couple centuries later. 
No, 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 no. We see right at the beginning, right after the resurrection, clear statements that this Jesus is God in the flesh. This is the author of life. This is the holy one, the righteous one. Jesus is no ordinary man. He is the living God. And God's own people, Peter said, chose to murder him instead of set him free. And so as Peter deflects the praise of the people, he forces them to encounter the full weight of Jesus's identity. See, Jesus not only died, but he has risen from the dead. And Peter tells them, this is who this Jesus is. And we are witnesses of his resurrection. You see, as we share the gospel with people, and I certainly hope that you do, and as we minister to others in need, we, we have to force them as well to encounter the true identity of Jesus. Right? We must not just preach that Christ is your healer, he's your friend, he's your counselor, he's your teacher. Yes, he is each and every one of those things, but there's more. Peter forces the crowd to grapple with the audacious but wonderful claim that Jesus is God. He's God. Indeed, that truth, when you start preaching that to people, when you start telling people that Jesus is God, that will destroy any worldview you tend to create for yourself. It just demolishes it because it forces you to change the whole way you see the world, the whole way you think about the world, the whole way you think about yourself. The deity of Christ changes everything. No wonder it's so threatening to people because if Jesus is God, it literally changes every system and fabrication and worldview you've made for yourself. And so as Peter begins preaching, he doesn't allow any other option about Jesus to be considered. He forces them to encounter this Jesus. Yeah, he's the holy one. He's the righteous one. He's the author of life. He was killed, but he is risen. Of this we are witnesses. He forces them to encounter the uniqueness and the power and the fullness of Christ's identity. And so as Peter continues, we see in verse 16, here's where Peter begins to actually answer their question. How did this miracle happen what, what, what brought this about? And Peter says in verse 16, all this culminates in this answer. How is this crippled man healed? How is this beggar now leaping? Look at what he says, verse 16, and his name, talking about Jesus, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. There's a lot to unpack here, right? Peter is clear that it is by faith that this man was healed. Faith in Jesus. But, but what does this mean exactly? Whose faith in Jesus brought about this man's healing? Well, it, it wasn't the crippled man. After all, there's no inclination that he had any idea who Jesus was, who Peter was, right? All he was doing was just sitting there begging like he did every other day. He wasn't a seeker of the Lord, nor was he necessarily interested in the gospel, though I bet he changed his tune right after he started leaping around. So, so, so it couldn't have been the beggar's faith that brought about this healing. The man had no faith. So the faith that healed the man was the church's faith, particularly the faith of Peter and John who enacted the miracle. You see, faith is the power of the church. 
And as the church trusts in the name of Christ, as we act, as we speak in his name, those words and those actions are sourced with power from on high. You see, miraculous healings can certainly happen today. In fact, I think the New Testament even urges us to to pray for such healing. Remember the the end of the epistle of James, where James encourages the, the, the church to take up the prayer of faith? in which the elders would gather around to, to, to pray specifically for those who are sick. You know, we, we've heard stories of things happening overseas with missionaries in unreached areas of wondrous healings and recovery. So I, I think though the number and nature of miracles were unique in the book of Acts, God is certainly at work today and often does do miracles through his church. However, notice what that what Peter says here as he's preaching to the crowd, it's so very different, categorically different than what is talked about by the phony healing ministries of the televangelists and the sort of drivel that makes up their prosperity gospel teaching, right? Look at what, what, what Peter says here. They, what, what those false teachers do, those false healers, they put the power of healing on the faith of the individual asking for it. That if you believe enough, If you trust enough, if you have faith enough, then God will heal you, so they say. However, if you don't get healed, then the problem is with you. Problem is your faith. Problem is you didn't believe enough. Notice how Peter's message just dismantles that sort of rubbish. You see, Peter says that this healing comes from Jesus. That Jesus is the sovereign, all-powerful king. He's the author of life. And on this day, the author of life decided to heal this crippled man through Peter. You see, miracles do not come by some sort of divine manipulation on our part. But miracles come by the sovereign distribution of power channeled through the faith of the church. So think about this for a second. Right, this isn't the first time Peter has been to the temple, is it? He had, he's probably gone just about every day while he was in Jerusalem. And guess who was sitting out by that beautiful gate day after day? This, this crippled beggar. Here's another fascinating thing to think about. And here we are, are merely only speculating. But if this man had been coming daily for many years, this crippled man might have seen Jesus entering the temple just a few weeks ago. Yet it would be this day, the day recorded in Acts chapter 3, that Christ would decide to heal the man. So as Peter walked into the gate, the the Holy Spirit pressed inside his soul and said, this is the day, Peter. This is the day I have chosen to heal this man. And through the power of Christ, channeled through the faith of his people, Jesus healed this man. You see, when it comes to to miracles, they happen through faith, not by faith. They happen through faith, not by faith. What do I mean by that? Well, Well, miracles do not come by the mustering of more faith treating faith as some sort of currency that we have to to accumulate. And that if we get enough of that currency, then we can take that currency of faith and trade it in for a miracle or trade it in for healing. But rather, look at what Peter says. Peter says that it is through faith, through faith. Rather, faith is the, the pipeline from heaven 
through which the sovereign Jesus may choose to intervene and perform a miracle. You see, on on this day at the temple, the Holy Spirit had whispered to Peter's soul that, that this day, that through faith in Jesus, this man would be made whole. You see, as we remember to pray for healing, we must remember that God always answers this prayer for his people, something we can't forget. Either presently, through the immediate prayers of of the people, God might bring healing instantaneously, immediately, miraculously. He can do it, but we always know that that prayer will always be answered at the end of the age in the coming resurrection. Healing will come. And so it's never a matter of if healing will come, but when healing will come. Yet we must give praise to God as the creator of life, as the author of life. So God uses the the ordinary processes to heal through his miraculous providence, through his regular, ordinary providence. So sometimes Jesus will heal miraculously and immediately. Sometimes he, he works through pharmacists and surgeons to bring about his healing. But Jesus is the author of life. As we see, all of the cosmos is under the rule of Christ. So so this Jesus who, who by through Peter, healed this crippled man is the same Jesus that created the, the molecules and the chemicals that would bring healing biologically to our bodies through medication. Either way, Jesus deserves praise for healing, whether through a prayer meeting or through antibiotics. Remember, remember the power of the church comes through faith, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the source of our power as we minister to this world. God brings his power through the means of faith as the church prays and submits to the lordship of Christ and as we submit to the marching orders of the Holy Spirit. And so when Christ does the miraculous, when he does the marvelous, when he displays his power, Christ receives all the glory. And that leads, thirdly, to the call for salvation in Jesus. The call for salvation in Jesus. So after Peter explaining what had happened through faith in Jesus, Peter's clear Jesus is the source of this power. He's the source of this healing. He's the one who did it. He takes this opportunity, and he gathers the crowd, and he makes his evangelistic appeal. And he shares the gospel with those who are gathered there that day. See, one thing that that Peter does, if you read this sermon here, right, is he accuses the crowd repeatedly of sin, doesn't he? Almost uncomfortably so, a little bit. I mean, look, look, he's trying to convince this crowd that's listening, so amazed by this act of mercy and the healing of this crippled man, he's trying to convince the crowd of their sin. Look at what Peter tells them, verse 13. He says, you handed Jesus over and you're worse than Pilate. Right? Pilate wanted to set him free. You wanted him dead. Verse 14, he said, you traded the holy and righteous one for a murderer. Right? You traded the holy one for a murderer. Verse 15, he said, you killed the author of life. Verse 17, you're ignorant. <laughs> you're ignorant. Verse 18 through 25, Peter says, you don't understand the Bible. Right? You don't understand the prophets. Verse 26, you're wicked. Right? Peter is unrelenting in these 
short few paragraphs that summarize this message. He's unrelenting and forcing the crowd not just to confront the holy identity and power of the divine Jesus, but he also brings the crowd face to face with their own sin. Face to face with it. They can't get out of it. Right? Central to every gospel presentation, I think, is doing both of those things. Right? Forcing people to encounter the holy, risen, divine Christ who reigns and rules and who is coming again. And we also have to force them to confront their idolatry, their rebellion, their wickedness. You see, God's word repeatedly reminds us of those things. He reminds us of our our idolatry, of our sinfulness. We are told repeatedly of our sin, and then God's word tells us that our sin deserves swift judgment. After all, the wages of sin is death. So as Peter extends the call to salvation in Jesus, he first here is convincing them of their sin, of their need for salvation in Jesus. And then Peter extends in verse 19, he extends to them this call of repentance, this call of repentance. Here's the response demanded by Christ of sinners. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. See, repentance is a a turning back. If sin, then, is walking away from the Lord, repentance is making an about face. It's turning around and then now walking to the Lord. You see, repentance is not just about stopping sin, but it's about walking towards Christ. It's a change of direction. And so as Peter preaches this crowd to this crowd, he talks about how this crowd had rejected Jesus. Yes, they'd even murdered Jesus, but yet now in repentance, Peter is calling them to embrace Jesus as their promised king so that their sins may be blotted out, that their sins might be covered by the blood of Christ. And so as Peter continues to plead with them for repentance, Peter takes them through the, the scriptures And he demonstrates from God's word how Jesus is the promised Messiah. That Jesus is the one promised by Moses. That when he said that the Lord would raise up a prophet like me from among your brothers, Peter says, guess what? He's talking about Jesus, right? Jesus is the prophet of prophets. He is the one that all the prophets have been testifying towards. He is that servant. He is the one that we're waiting for. And Peter helps the people to see that that, that you're the sons of the prophets, You're the sons of the prophets. You are the the covenant children of Abraham. If anyone should have been able to recognize and realize who the promised one is, it ought to have been them. Jesus, Peter says, is the fulfillment of all of God's promises, particularly the Abrahamic covenant, right? The promise that Jesus is the one through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. Peter makes that Application explicit. This is what God was talking about. Jesus would be the one through whom the whole world is blessed. And and this Christ has been sent to the children of Israel to bless them. But yet they've turned away in wickedness to the Lord. And so Peter calls them to repentance. See, just in this short summary of Peter's explanation that Luke records for us, I'm sure this sermon was much lengthier, we, we get a powerful explanation of how God has fulfilled all of his word. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of every covenantal blessing, every covenantal promise. All the world will be blessed through Abraham, and Jesus is that son that was promised. And so all then must recognize his kingship, his lordship, starting first and foremost with the Jews, and then with the Gentiles. Isn't this remarkably similar to what Paul would write in Romans chapter 1 as he begins his great treaty on the gospel? As Paul would say, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Look at, look at Peter's appeal in verse 26. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, Israel, to you first, that you might see him and recognize him and be blessed by him, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So repent, Peter pleads. Repent from your wickedness and recognize the servant the Lord God has raised up. And of course, that same appeal I give to all who are here who have yet to recognize their sin, who have yet to confess the deity of Christ as Savior, as King, as God. Christ has been given to bless you. So repent of your wickedness. Have your sins blotted out by his blood and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You see, throughout Peter's gospel presentation, there's another thing that he does here is that he laces it with the hope of the coming restoration. Did you pick up on how he did that? Look at particularly verse 19 through 21 of the text. Look at it carefully. Starting in verse 19, he says, Repent therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing, refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Peter mentions the refreshment that comes from God's presence. He also mentions the restoration of all things at the end of the age, that beautiful passage right, that Pastor Jimmy read for us at the start of our service today. It's found fulfillment in Christ. That restoration is coming. This crippled man, we read about in Acts 3, this crippled man who dragged himself around at the beautiful gate in the temple is now leaping for joy in the Lord. And what the crowd had witnessed, Peter tells them, is the power of the future kingdom of God actually rupturing into the present. Peter says the restoration is coming, and it is coming through faith in Jesus. Christ is the king who by his sovereign power will mend the broken and who will strengthen the legs of the lame. You see, the man, this crippled man, this beggar that we read about here in Acts 3, this man illustrated for all who were there, it illustrated the power of the gospel and the power of Jesus. This man, exhibit A, look at him. The restoration is coming. So repent of your sin and recognize the servant of the Lord who is the author of life. This restoration is coming. So, so Peter's imploring, let the blood of Jesus blot out your transgressions. You who have gathered to pray, let your soul now be refreshed in the presence of the Lord. And guess what? You don't have to go into the holy and holies to do it anymore. Right? Christ has made the way. You can come into the presence of God now. The time of restoration is soon coming. This restoration that Isaiah talked about, that you've read and that you know. 
This is what Peter's calling them to recognize the hope, the restoration of this broken world in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, church, we have nothing, nothing to offer this world. No message, no mercy, no power, no miracle without Jesus. As we look at this broken world, we can so easily become discouraged by its suffering how little that we have to alleviate the sufferings of so much of humanity. We have no silver. We have no gold, but we do have Jesus. And he is more than enough. He alone can bring the restoration of all things. Christ alone can blot out all of our sins. He alone can make we, us, us lame sinners, dance for his glory. And I bet you have some friends and some co-workers, and some neighbors that are in need. So in love and compassion, meet those people where they are. Meet their needs as best as you can in the name of Christ, but never forget that you have something every person in this world needs, and you are the one who can give it to them. You have the gospel of Jesus Christ. So preach it. Share it. Like Peter, call others to repent and trust in this Christ. All we have to give them is Jesus, and he is more than enough. So if you are here this morning, I'm not sure how you came here. If you just stumbled in, I'm not sure what you are looking for. Are you broken? Are you desperate? Are you frail? Are you sick? Are you enslaved? Are you lonely? I have no silver no gold to give to you, but what I do have, I give to you. Repent and trust in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Let's pray together. Father, we are amazed at Jesus's power of his glory, of his wonder. Lord, he is the Holy One. He is the righteous one. He is the author of life. And so, Father, we confess that any power in our ministry, any power in our witness, all comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, you are indeed restoring all things as your gospel goes forth. So, Father, we pray, Lord, that you would help us as your church to be faithful, as Peter does, in meeting the needs of those around us, but Lord, also sharing and declaring the good news of the promise of Christ's coming. Lord, that we wouldn't hesitate to to present the fullness of Christ's identity, his power, his deity, his magnificence. But Lord, that we would also confront people also with their wretchedness, with their sin. And Lord, so call them to repentance. Call them to repent of their wickedness and to receive the blessings given by your servant that you, O God of Abraham and Isaac of Jacob, that you have raised up for the blessing of the nations. So Father, we pray, Lord, that Christ would receive any glory from our ministry as a church, any ministry that we do on an individual basis. And Father, I pray, Lord, that those who are far from you, those who are crippled by sin, that they would confess it this morning. And that, Lord, that you would lift them up in the power of your grace and mercy as they trust in Jesus as their Savior and King. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.